Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that, the worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. This week, the story of an unlikely Stanford alumnus. My mother, by the way, jokes, uh, she was afraid I was going to become a hippie, living out here, and then become a communist. An expert on international relations with Russia. They sent around hashtag Crooked Hillary. Pretty clear who the side they're on, right? <laughs> Today on Stanford Pathfinders, former Russian ambassador Mike McFall. Here's your host, Howard Wolf. At the risk of understatement, Russia has been in the news a bit these past several years for a host of reasons. From events in Crimea to allegations of meddling the 2016 U.S. presidential election, we can't seem to escape news about Russia. Today's special guest, Mike McFall, a Stanford professor of political science, as well as a Stanford alum, may know more about Russia than most anyone else in the U.S. He is certainly Stanford's Russia expert, and he is a regular on news shows seeking to tap into his knowledge of and experience with Russia and Eurasia. With both a BA in international relations in Slavic languages and an MA in Soviet and East European studies from Stanford, as well as a DPhil, their version of a PhD, from Oxford in international relations where he was a Rhodes Scholar, he certainly has the academic chops to opine on the Russia situation. But Mike also has the national policy chops as well, having served for five years in the Obama administration— First, as a special assistant to the president and senior director for Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council at the White House, and then as U.S. ambassador to the Russian Federation from 2012 to 2014. As if that weren't enough, he has authored several books related to Russia, democracy, and development, and he is the ultimate Stanford citizen, an alumnus, the spouse of an alumna, the father of a current Stanford student, a Stanford volunteer— and a Stanford professor. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start with Montana. Okay. That's a place how, I know well. How did a kid from Montana end up at Stanford? Was that the normal path for a kid from Bozeman, Montana? No. In fact, I'm not really from Bozeman. That's a bit of mythology. I was born in a t little town called Glasgow, Montana. But I really grew up in a town called Butte, Montana. And to you, these two B towns from Montana, they probably don't mean anything different. But Butte and Bozeman are pretty different places. Butte's a tough mining town. And when I lived in Butte, my sole goal in life was to get to Montana State in Bozeman. And my family actually moved my junior year. My father was a country western musician. He had a steady job in Bozeman, five kids and not a lot of money. And their idea was, we will move to Bozeman, and then our kids can live 
in our house and go to school at Montana State. Exactly what you wanted, to live at home while you're going to college. Well, I, that I hadn't thought about. But so we <laughs> moved my junior year. And the reason I ended up at Stanford University is because I had a chemistry partner named Steve Smith. And Steve was like, he had come from San Jose. So he was a worldly character compared to me. <laughs> I'd come from Butte. And he said, you got to get out of this state. You got to go somewhere out of state to, for university. You got to get out of Montana. And I remember very vividly the day we walked down to the admissions office and we picked up some applications. And I picked up what I thought were the big schools, right? I picked up Harvard and I picked up this one, Stanford, and it said Stanford, comma, CA. And I looked at Steve and I was like, is that Connecticut? Because I had always assumed Stanford was in the East Coast. That's where all the good schools are. That was the first day I even knew that Stanford was in California. So picked up the application. At that point, uh, I was a debater in high school and uh, was semi-recruited to go to the school of McAllister. I don't know if you know sure. it, in Minnesota. And visited even and really liked it. And then I got into Stanford, but I still thought I'd go to McAllister. And the truth of the matter is, Stanford was less expensive for me. And that was the decider. Uh, that was how I ended up at Stanford. Love that story. So as I said in my introduction, you are a Russia specialist. And my understanding is that you've been all about Russia ever since you were an undergraduate here at Stanford. So what turned you on to the world of Russia? So a couple of things. And by the way, I've been trying not to be a Russia specialist for 15 years. Just You're so you failing know. miserably. <laughs> Every time I write books about other things, I teach courses about other things, and I keep getting pulled back. And the last guy to pull me back was uh, Barack Obama, by the way. But I've heard of him. To answer your question, it actually starts in Montana and then gets nurtured here at Stanford. So my junior year, I moved to Bozeman. I wanted to take the easiest English class I could because I didn't like to read and I didn't like to write. Think about the irony of what I do now. A professor at Stanford did not like to read or write. Yes. And my neighbor said the Mick class, the Mickey Mouse class. English class, was debate. Take debate. You don't have to write. You don't have to do much. So I took debate. And the debate topic that year was to improve U.S. trade policy. And so I was partnered with somebody, and we ran a case about increasing trade to the Soviet Union. We had an argument for why that was good for America. And so that was the beginning of it. By the way, my debate partner, his name is Steve Daines. He's now Senator Steve Daines from Montana, oh, wow. uh, just elected last year. We were a pretty good debate team, by the way. Uh, I was better than him, but he was really good too. Anyway, that's my, that was my first thing. And then I got here, 17-year-old kid, fall quarter, freshman year. By the way, I'd never been to the state of California, let alone abroad, just to show you how raw I was. That was a time, you know, fall 1981, Ronald Reagan had just been elected. He was talking about being tough with the Russians. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this guy's going to blow up the world. We've got to do something about this. And my theory back then, and really has been a theory for decades, was if we could just get to know them a little better, we could reduce tensions. And so fall quarter of my freshman year, I took two classes that changed the course of my life. First year Russian. And Poli-Sci 35, uh, Introductory to International Relations, taught by Steve Krasner, where I thought about, like, how the world works. And, and Steve's still a colleague of mine and, you know, fantastic teacher. I still can remember what he taught. But then that second class I took because I wanted to go to the Soviet Union. And so after two years of taking Russian here, my first trip abroad 
was to Leningrad, USSR. My mother, by the way, jokes, uh, she was afraid. She wanted me to go to McAllister. She didn't want me to go where all these hippies in California were. And she was afraid I was going to become a hippie living out here and then become a communist. And so when I called her up to say, I'm going to the <laughs> communist Soviet Union. Her Union, worst fears. Her worst fears. And my hair got a lot longer those two years, too. <laughs> um, uh, so that was the impulse. But here at Stanford, there were really two people that put me on that course. Alex George and Alex Dolan, they were my undergraduate supervisors. And those were the guys that made me think about Russia and U.S.-Russia relations. And, and, you know, for good or for ill, I've been kind of engaged ever since. So you've spent a lot of time in Russia over the years. There's one story I've heard about during one of your stints in Russia back in the mid-1990s. A shot was fired into your Moscow office through a window. Tell us that story. That year, I was there to help start a think tank, the Moscow Carnegie Center. It was the year before I joined the faculty here, so I had a sabbatical year before I came here. And that was new. Americans doing think tanks in Russia, that was rather new. So there was some hostility to what we were doing, although other people embraced us. I was not in the office at the time. And obviously, we never solved the mystery of what was happening, but, you know— Were you the target? We don't know for sure, but at the time, there were some Russian nationalists that were denouncing me uh, on television and say that that people like me should be kicked out of the country. So you've served the U.S. in numerous roles over the years, ultimately serving, as I said in the opening, as U.S. ambassador to Russia for two years from 2012 to 14 under President Barack Obama. So what surprised you most about that experience, being the ambassador for the United States in Russia? Well, let me give you a little bit of background. So right before I became ambassador, I spent three years at the White House at the National Security Council as the president's Russia guy. And it was really— Was that the official title, uh, Russia guy? Russia guy. Well, sometimes I was called that. The exact title is special assistant to the president. And, you know, to be honest, Howard, it was an accident that I went to Moscow. The normal thing that happens with academics is you go for two years in the government. In fact, the average is 18 months. And a lot of universities require you to come back after two years. You have to give up tenure if you don't. We have another faculty member, Condoleezza Rice, who spent eight years in the government, so kind of set a precedent for us being more lenient, and I think that's right. She cleared that path for you. She cleared that path for me. But I had to petition every year with Stanford to allow me to, to extend my leave of absence. But I was planning to come back, and people forget this. It was at a time of a lot of cooperation in the early 2011. The reset, The reset. That was our policy. Did you coin that phrase? Uh, Yeah, I did. So I got to own that because a lot of people don't like that phrase anymore. But yeah, that was my phrase. I said something I should never say on the record. No, of course not. President Obama came up with that word because when you're in the government. Uh, yes, of course. There's no did. footnotes. You don't, you don't <laughs> take credit for anything. That was President Obama. To be exact, it was President-elect Obama. That was the first time he used that word. Anyway, I told my immediate boss, the national security advisor, Tom Donlan, you know, it's time for me to go. I promised my family we'd get back to Stanford. You had kids in high school at the time, right? Uh Middle school and and grade school. Okay. But my middle schooler, Cole McFall. A current Stanford student. Stanford sophomore, Stanford senator. Senator McFall to you and me. Uh, (laughs) The student uh, senate. I promised them we were going to go home, right? I had dragged them out of paradise. Stanford's paradise. We live on campus. We love the Stanford. We have season tickets to football and basketball. We're we're the most Stanford family you can be. My kids were born at Stanford Hospital. Uh, I hope I can be buried here. And I said, just two years. Give me two years because he's a historic president. And that was my commitment to them. And then the first my boss— 
my immediate boss and then the president said, you can't leave now. We're changing the world. We're changing the relationship. And I went home and they were like, really? We got to stay here. So another colleague of mine, friend of mine, Dennis McDonough is his name. Uh, He later became the chief of staff for the president. He said, I got an idea. We'll keep you on the Russia team, but we'll send you to Moscow. And so you can have a more family-friendly job. By the way, being ambassador was a much more family-friendly job than working at the White House and still be on the Russia team and just give us a couple more years. So that's how I ended up as ambassador. And that's where you forged that wonderfully close relationship with Mr. Putin. (laughs) Well, I had met him a long time earlier. I'd met him in the spring of 1991. So Obama convinces me in the spring of 19, 2011 to do this, right? And then it takes a while. You go through the process, Senate confirmation, all that. By the time I arrived, U.S.-Russian relations had started to tank. Yeah. And the main reason was Putin came back. He replaced Medvedev. And in between that time, in December 2011, there were massive protests on the streets of Russia against Putin and his return to power, and he began to blame us. Barack Obama, Secretary Clinton, which is part of the reason he's been so aggressive in 2016 against her. And when I arrived, and his argument that was made on their press, and, and sometimes sitting as close as you and I were with him, that Obama had sent me to Russia to foment revolution against him. And all these people protesting are traitors and puppets of me. They were your agents. They were my agents. I was funding them. And, you know, whether that was just instrumental for him or whether he really believed it, we used to argue, but it didn't matter, practically speaking, for the rest of my time. Day two, they did this hit job on me on national television saying that was my mission. And for the rest of my time there, that was my image in the Russian press. And if you were to try to go back to Russia today... I can't. You cannot. So Russia in February 2014, invaded Ukraine. Yes, they did. Not on my watch, by the way. It was literally the day I was flying home. They went into Crimea. So I like to say— Coincidence? It didn't happen on my watch. He was too afraid to do it when I was there. But after I left, (laughs) all hell broke loose. Our government and the Europeans rightly sanctioned individuals in Russia as a result of that and then increased sanctions after the interference in our elections— so they responded, and they put Americans on the sanctions list. And You, you were know, on the sanctions list. I'm on the sanctions list. You are persona list. non grata in Russia. And how long do you right think now, that will last? I don't know. I think it could last a long time because I think our sanctions are probably going to last a long time. And they're not going to lift me off the list. So let's, let's until, talk about hardball. What do you think, understanding your background, your experience, all of your knowledge, what do you think Russia did? during the presidential election of 2016 with regards to interference? And why do you think they did whatever they did? So let's start with the why and then the what. Because the why, to me, relates to this history I'm just talking about. So December 2011, protests begin in Russia. Secretary Clinton releases a statement. I think she was in Lithuania at the time, criticizing whether that was a free and fair election. I was working at the White House at the time, and I was the guy at the White House that cleared that statement. That's how it works, right? I remember very vividly. I was up in Maryland. My son was playing football. I'm trying to find a quiet space to get on the the call so we could talk about it. The wind's blowing and raining. And I remember very vividly clearing on it and thinking, oh, it's kind of milquetoast statement, no big deal, but good enough. Good enough for government, right? He reacted violently to that statement. 
because we didn't know this when we put out the statement, but a couple of days later, tens of thousands, 50,000, then hundreds of thousands of people came out on the streets of Russia. The last time that it happened, by the way, was 1991, the year the Soviet Union collapsed, the year that there was regime change in Russia. So he was frightened by those crowds and he blamed her for that. So this is retribution. Yes. I think in part it's – this was his chance to get back at her because she obviously was a presidential candidate. The second piece was that candidate Trump said a lot of pro-Russia things. And so it's pretty rational that the guy that thinks – that talks about lifting sanctions and thinking about recognizing Crimea as being part of Russia, attacking NATO. These are things he said as a candidate. Hasn't done any of them as a president, by the way, but those are things he said as a candidate – So he would want to support Trump. So that, I think, is the motivation. The biggest thing they did to impact the election was they stole data from the Democratic National Committee. They stole data from the campaign chairman, John Podesta. Notice I'm using the the verb steal on purpose because that's what it is. It's theft of their private property. And by the way, we spy on each other all the time. We're gathering intelligence. That's, That's normal. That's the game. That's the game. What's not the game is to publish that data. And that's what they did. They sent it to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks published it, and it had a huge impact in terms of Clinton and Sanders and and a lot of grief to this day, by the way, driven and sparked by what they published. That's the first thing they did. Second thing they did, we're learning more and more every day. They were very active on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube with a two messages. One was a pro-Trump message, anti-Clinton message. So on Twitter, for instance, on a thing called Sputnik, they sent around hashtag Crooked Hillary. Pretty clear who the side they're on, right? <laughs> uh, uh, that's, that, that's not neutral. But they also put out messages just to stir up things and to exacerbate tensions within America. And they did that on social media as well. The piece we don't know exactly what they did was did they coordinate their efforts with the Trump campaign? That's the part that I'm not prepared to say they did, but I I know that we don't know all the facts yet, and that's why we need to let these investigations. Well, Mueller will help us understand. That's his job. This is Stanford Pathfinders. More with Stanford professor and Russia expert Mike McFall coming up. This is Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight 121. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with Stanford professor and Russia expert, Mike McFall. So on this topic of interference and cyber interference and cyber terrorism, you've spent a lot of time focused on this here at Stanford. Yes. And we have a center that's looking at this. How afraid should we as U.S. citizens be about this topic? very afraid. And here's why. The technology is running faster than the policy. The technology is running faster than our ability to respond to it and our policy response first and foremost, right? That's problem number one. Problem number two is about attribution. If somebody shoots a nuclear weapon at us or somebody sends an army at us, we know where they come from. Cyber, that's a lot harder. So that makes it a lot messier. The real scary scenarios with respect to critical infrastructure, you know, what happens when one of our enemies, whether it's a jihadist group, ISIS or Russia or North Korea. All kinds of actors. What happens when they mess with something and cause people to die? 
to date, to the best of my knowledge, because it may have happened and I don't know, that hasn't happened. But if you think about it, there's cyber in everything, right? There's cyber in airplanes, there's cyber in ships, all that stuff with respect to dams. I mean, think about the stock market. There are a lot of places that if there's ever a serious breach of our critical infrastructure, there'll be a lot of damage done. And then, then there'll be a lot of pressure on our president or in our government to respond, and that could spark something that could spiral out of control. You just mentioned our president. So let's talk about Donald Trump for just a second. As a former diplomat, what do you think about President Trump's habit of tweeting about international affairs? Is this simply a direct style of communication, the president to the people? Or instead, is this something entirely else? There's no question that Twitter, Facebook, lots of other platforms are a new part of diplomacy. In fact, I remember very vividly the day that I went in to see my my soon-to-be new boss because my old boss was the president. And by the way, all ambassadors report to the president, so he still is my, pre- my boss. But I was uh, getting to know and uh, I was going to have a new boss, the secretary of state, Clinton. And she said, Mike, you got to get on Twitter. And I'd never seen a tweet. Hillary Clinton is the one that got you on Twitter. Yes, yes. Interesting. And she said, we need to use this platform to communicate directly to the people of Russia so that they know what our policy is and what America is, by the way. I mean, I spent a lot of time on Twitter and Facebook and Vukontakte and other things talking about Stanford and talking about Montana and just talking about who we are as a people, not just about policy. And that was extremely important. To, in terms of our messaging. But ostensibly, she wanted you to do that because she didn't trust that Russia would be able to tell our story to their people. Exactly. But does Donald Trump not believe that the media can tell his story to the American people? Well, I would say two things. So that we all need to get used to, and I'm sure diplomats talked about radio as being this horrible thing, and then they talked about TV as being this horrible thing. But that train has left the station. If you're not using these platforms, you're not doing public diplomacy. President Trump, however, is not doing that. He is, especially when it comes to sensitive negotiations between heads of states or between adversaries, that is not the right medium to do that, especially with respect to North Korea. I think many people, even in his administration, would agree with me. That's not helping them do the sensitive negotiations you have to do. And sometimes diplomacy has to be off the record. It can't all be transmitted on TV or Twitter. So let's move away from Russia and from Trump and talk about just the world. Democracy seems to be on the decline around the world. And you focus on democracy and the development of countries. Is this simply a down cycle or should we be worried about the role of democracy around the globe? So I don't know the answer to your first question. And I don't believe anybody that will give you an answer, just to be clear, right? So Uh, we don't know if this is an ebb and flow of a cycle. We don't. There are ebbs and flows of cycles of democracy over the last 150 years. Some say we're in the third wave now. Some say we're in the fourth wave. But we definitely have had expansion of democracy and retreat. What we don't know is how much of the rise of democracy over the last 30 or 40 years is tied to the rise of American power. There's certainly a correlation there, right, that we're the most powerful country in the world. We believe in democracy or, or what we academics sometimes call liberal, liberalism. And as Amer- if America is declining, will democracy decline with us? I don't know the answer to that. I'm definitely worried about the trend line. The trend line's in the wrong direction. And I'm worried about this current administration. 
there's always been a debate between those that that advocate for supporting our values versus those that just say, hey, let's not care about that. Let's just talk about our interests. We call them liberals or neocons if you're in the Republican Party and realists. And by the way, these debates are within the the Democratic and Republican Party. They're not between them. That's something I think people get confused by. President Trump doesn't talk about democracy and human rights at all, very rarely. And I'm concerned that that is a departure from a lot of tradition in American foreign policy and may be leading to accelerating this recession in democracy around the world. And how does nationalism fit into all of this? Well, nationalism can be a force for democracy, but it can push against it. So in 1989, if you go back to the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, the nationalists who were anti-Soviet in Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, they came together with the supporters of democracy because democracy was the ideology of opposition. If you hated the Soviets, you were pro-democracy, right? Right. And so that came together in a positive way. What you're seeing exactly in those three countries I just named is some fissures between them. And nationalists now rising up in those places to say that maybe democracy is not good for us. Maybe we should go our own way. I don't know where it's ending, but the forces of populism are worldwide, I say generally right now, are not supportive of democratic institutions and democratic values. So as a faculty member here at Stanford, as a professor of political science, someone who runs the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, the father of a current Stanford sophomore, you interact with a lot of students in the yeah. course of your daily life. It's fantastic. So talk to me about what students are concerned about geopolitically today? And how does that inform what they're studying and where they're going after they leave Stanford? Well, the first thing I'd say is they're not worried enough about anything that happens abroad. I understand why, because there isn't that existential threat that everything depends on the Cold War struggle between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so what's happened over time is less interest in these issues. And that's a general trend. At the same time that there's been an explosion of interest in the Silicon Valley and and computer science and the idea that if you want to change the world, you don't need to go to the State Department. You need to go to Google. Technology is the answer for everything. Exactly. And I believe a lot of that, by the way. I'm I'm a big pro-technology guy. I'm not one of these fearful of the valley and uh, we need to, like, constrain it. I think if done properly and framed in the right way, many of the technologies that have come out of this university are doing great good. But they have to have a worldview. They have to see how that's connected to other things. I worry about it, um, and then every now and then things happen here that make me think everything will be just fine. We just had Susan Rice here, for instance. Uh, Your classmate. My classmate uh, here at Stanford and Oxford. Also the parent of a current Stanford student. Yes, sophomore. Uh, my, the, the, my son and her son, they know each other well. They've known each other since they, they were And Susan babies. is the former ambassador to? The United Nations, Nations. and National Security Advisor. Advisor, so just left the government. We partnered with Stanford and government to bring Susan here. And we got we were in a big lecture hall, and I'll tell you honestly, I was walking over, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, what if nobody shows up? It's midterms, people are here distracted. She's going to talk about her experiences in the government, and the world, and there were 500 students there. Wow! So fantastic. We should never underestimate our undergraduate community here. We should just provide those opportunities for them to think about the world. Professor Mike McFall, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for joining us on Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the Sirius XM app.